I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending March 26th. This week, Intel announced its momentous decision to establish a standalone foundry business. The ramifications are nearly endless. In this episode, we'll be talking with curious research analysts Jim McGregor and Kevin Crewell about what the decision means and what Intel's prospects are. Also, we talk with EE Times editors Nitin Dahad and Maurizio Paolo Emilio about the new Aspen Core Guide to Gallium Nitride. First, here's a quick rundown of some of the top articles we have in EE Times this week. This is a good time to take advantage of being in the foundry business, and not just for Intel. Skywater has filed paperwork that paves the way for the company to make an initial public offering. Skywater, based in Minnesota, is expecting to prosper after getting designated as a trusted foundry, which means it qualifies for work done on behalf of the U.S. Department of Defense. One of the original benefits of using silicon for integrated circuits was that silicon ICs could be planar, which is to say 2D. Progress eventually meant adopting 3D structures. Advances in the future, however, might be predicated on going back to 2D. Our story on that is called Chipmakers must learn new ways to play D. See, there's there's 2D and 3D, and 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 then it's also kind of a, a sports reference, playing defense, playing D. Yeah, okay, moving right along. Artificial intelligence continues to be a hot market. We've got two separate stories on two different AI chip companies that seem to be distinguishing themselves from the pack. One is about FlexLogics, which just attracted another $55 million in venture funding. The other is about Neron and its savvy attempt to back into the automotive business, a notoriously difficult market for startups to penetrate. Other stories include a teardown of Volkswagen's Gulf 8, a feature-rich vehicle that includes a surprisingly innovative integration of electronic subsystems. Also, an account of a fire at a Renaissance fab in Japan that's going to exacerbate the global chip shortage. If you're on our podcast webpage, there are links to all these stories on your left. Otherwise, you can find these and other stories when you visit our website at eetimes.com. Intel has been around for a long time, and it's had its ups and downs. Lately, it seems to have had more downs than ups. Until recently, the undisputed leader in semiconductor manufacturing, the company recently flubbed two successive generations of manufacturing process technology. That gave its two rivals for the manufacturing crown, Samsung and Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, or TSMC, the opportunity to surpass it. Intel recently replaced CEO Bob Swan with Pat Gelsinger. Swan did well, but he was always an unusual choice for the top job at Intel. First, because he was an outsider, and second, because he was also a finance guy, not an engineer. Gelsinger, on the other hand, is an engineer who spent a good portion of his early career at Intel and can boast of having worked with all three of the company's iconic founders, Bob Noyce, Gordon Moore, and Andy Grove. And he does. Ever since Intel brought Gelsinger back, guessing what he might do has been an ongoing parlor game. Given the company's manufacturing woes, Gelsinger appeared to have two options. Invest in reviving Intel's manufacturing prowess, or 
shed the financial and technical burden of running its own factories. Gelsinger surprised pretty much everyone by coming up with a third option. He announced the company would set up a standalone foundry business. For the background on why this was unexpected, read our story on the announcement. The headline is, Intel Surprises with $20 billion Expansion of Foundry Business. Before we go on, I'm going to offer a quick definition of terms. The majority of EE Times readers are already familiar with this stuff, but not all of our podcast listeners can be expected to know the jargon. So, a semiconductor factory is referred to as a fab. A foundry is also a fab, but the two words connote different business models. Usually, a company that designs its own chips and also makes its own chips operates a fab. A company that makes chips designed by other companies operates a foundry service. By the way, those chip companies without their own factories, the ones that have to contract with foundries to get their chips made, they're referred to as fabless. Now, TSMC is a pure foundry. Samsung is a combination fab and foundry. Intel mostly runs its own fabs. That said, it does perform a small amount of foundry work. Our article on the web goes over what Intel said and did at its announcement, but we also wanted to explore the context and the ramifications, and for that we called up our friends at Tirius Research, Jim McGregor and Kevin Crewell. Both were so busy on conference calls trying to learn more about Intel's announcement that I couldn't interview them together. Nonetheless, they both provided some unique insights. I talked with Jim first. Jim, by the way, was formerly with Intel himself, back when Grove was CEO. So Jim, your article a couple weeks back, a couple months back, on how Intel can get out of manufacturing entirely, you were weirdly just about there. Yes. You had suggested that uh, they'd get out, either they'd buy a foundry and then get out of manufacturing entirely. Um, they're almost there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, they're, they're stating that they want to be in manufacturing, both as an IDM as and as a foundry. But um, we'll see. You know, you're right. Uh, that was my uh, key thing was, you know, if you really want to get out of manufacturing and want to unload that ca huge capital investment and overhead, you know, go ahead and... You know, get into foundry services, preferably by acquiring somebody like Global Foundries um, that is familiar with being a fab. You know, turn the entire Intel uh, manufacturing group into a foundry and eventually spin it off. You're right. They, they're not that far, but they seem to be following more of a Samsung model. You know, as long as we have state-of-the-art manufacturing, as long as we're competitive, then we can stay in there and we can use that expertise and that fab capacity to also be a foundry. Now, that was their reasoning the first time they tried to become a foundry and it wasn't successful. We'll see if it works this time. I mean, obviously, they're taking a new strategy. They're trying to have it as a separate group reporting directly to Pat. They're not bringing somebody in from a foundry to run it, which, you know, I, I think would be optimal, but still. And they've even opened up the idea that they may be willing to acquire other capacity. In fact, in a, a meeting with um, 
Pat Gelsinger a couple of days ago, he indicated that, that that might be an opportunity not only to build other fab capacity in the U.S. and EU, but also maybe acquire fab capacity. So that may still be there. And you know, who knows? In the long term, that stay, still may be an option to get out of being a manufacturer and spin that off as a separate group. We don't know. But the first thing they have to do before anything is they have to be competitive. And, you know, that's the first thing he brought up in the announcement yesterday was we're trying to get back on track with 7 nanometer. We're going to be doing tape in with uh, our first meteor like cores starting in Q2. They have to hit those requirements. They, they have to be on track and they have to be competitive with their process nodes. Um, if they're going to be an IDM and or a foundry, they have to be competitive. Yeah. So uh, the... Getting into Foundry is is a really interesting option. They seem to be uh, set to be able to, to keep all of their options open still. Although, man, when you when you're ready to dedicate twenty billion dollars right up front, um, that seems like a pretty uh, indicative investment. It is. It is, and it's, and it's a challenging investment. I mean, you have to remember that they made a huge investment in Fab 42, which is their mega fab down the Ocotillo facility. And that sat dormant for a decade. So it's, it's, it's a risky investment because you have to use that capacity. If not, you've spent all that money up front and it gets used for nothing. I mean, I used to joke with them that, you know, when do I get to come play in your new basketball court? Um, referring to Fab 42, and they didn't like that very much. <laughs> <laughs> Well, referring to the basketball court started out on the wrong foot, perhaps. Um, as a practical matter, if they're if they're going to be building new fabs, um, we're not talking about coming online for another few years, right? Uh, I think Gelsinger, when he talked about the opportunity, and he sized it as a, a one hundred billion dollar opportunity in twenty twenty five. Is that about when we could expect uh, you know a, a new fab to to really start cranking, or is that is that what the timing is? Actually, I believe the hope is that they can start uh, be completed with these fabs in twenty twenty four, and that's still aggressive when you think that we're you know on, uh, through Q one in twenty twenty one. So I mean that's a little over two years uh, to be able to do that. Um, that is still very aggressive, but you have to remember that this is a facility where they bought tons of land. They have the infrastructure in. Um, it's supported by the utilities and everything else. So, I mean, they have the advantage in the fact that everything is set. All they have to do is really build the buildings and, and extend the infrastructure, and they're ready to go. Um, it is a reality. I mean, they could do it. Um, being able to do it on that site, they can do it within about two and a half to three years. Wow. And uh, so that's that's Arizona. Um, Gelsinger mentioned Europe several times in the context of expanding operations. And I've since seen some information from uh, some the, the government of Ireland uh, where they already they already have a facility in Ireland, and I've already seen references to um, the government of Ireland uh, trying to encourage an expansion of of that that campus, um, if if not someplace else in Europe. Have you heard anything about that? No, they really haven't really expanded on uh, the European plans, but 
they have indicated that obviously with future fab capacity expansions, they would open it up to anywhere. Um, and, and the reason they do that, obviously, is because it's very competitive when you're trying to put a new fab. Everyone wants it. When you put a new fab in, or when you get a new fab in a locale, you pretty much know that thing's going to be running for at least a decade, 24-7, over at least three life cycles. And then if you're Intel, they may completely gut it, retrofit it, and run it for another decade, uh, over another three generations, uh, which they've done with like Fab 12 uh, in Chandler, Arizona, or at the Alcatillo facility. So... Um, it, Obviously, the easiest place to put it would be Ireland. They already have uh, a fab there. They've already got uh, the relationships and everything else. But I kind of get the feeling that Intel would open it up for a competition. Um, And I don't blame them. You know, they can open it up and maybe get even better incentives from uh, Germany or from France. You know, all places that have had or do have other fab capacities from other com- other country uh, companies. So it's a possibility that it could go in multiple different places. You build a fab, it's ten years or more. You want to have it running, cranking out twenty four seven as close as near to that as you can. Um, there's got to be an expectation that the demand is going to be at that level, stay at that level at least and possibly increase. So uh, it, uh, it, it looks like Intel has that confidence. Well, this is where the foundry strategy comes in. I don't know that they have the confidence that they're going to have the demand for all their products over that period of time. I mean, they kind of had that expectation when they built Fab 42 um, and it didn't come to come to bear. So, But I think with the foundry strategy, they think that the overall market demand will be there. Um, so they're hoping that that's a huge opportunity for them. And, you know, uh, Pat Gelsinger is really, really adamant that, you know, he wants to open this up to the ARM architecture, to the RISC-V architecture. He wants to build a competitive IP pool working with like Cadence and Synopsys, as well as Intel's own IP. And he's willing to manufacture for anyone. You know, even it's his competition. Matter of fact, he's even indicated that they're willing to use their their state of the art back end assembly and and test facilities, which is the packaging stuff, um, for other foundry wafers, which some of their customers have asked, or other I should say other companies have asked them to do in the past, but they've always turned them down. And said no, if we're not manufacturing the wafers. You can't use our packaging. You know, he's completely opening it up, saying, listen, you know, we are very serious about being a foundry. So, you know, any model that works for you is going to work for us. Let's just make it work. Another thing he uh, he repeated a couple of times was sock to sip, going from silicon on, silicon, uh, on a chip, or systems on a chip, rather, to uh, systems in a package. Um, as, uh, silicon peters out, um, the packaging, um, is, is being positioned as a, uh, a new way to continue to eke performance improvements out of, uh, silicon processing. Um, and Intel's got some packaging expertise is that expertise, um, unique enough or extensive enough or superior enough, however you want to, re- you know, refer to it, uh, to make it a real differentiator uh, for Intel the Foundry. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, well, there's a couple things they can use, not only the packaging, but they can also use design services. You know, if Intel decides to offer design services, that could be a huge differentiator too, which is something that TSMC and Samsung can also do. But packaging is very unique in the fact that most of the foundries don't do packaging. They outsource it to third parties. Some of the larger foundries do have packaging, but uh, typically most of the packaging is done uh, externally. Intel is unique in the fact that, especially as an IDM, they've always done all their own fabbing and all their own packaging for, for the products built in their fabs. Um, and they were one of the first to do multi-chip modules. They were one of the first to do die stacking. They were one of the first, in not in large production, but they were in, in terms of research and development. So they have that capability, and that could be a huge differentiator for them. All right. So we alluded before uh, to this, uh, Intel has tried the foundry business before and failed. Um, can I just get to talk to you about what uh, what they got wrong with the previous attempt? And uh, I know we've already talked about some of the benefits and, and advantages that they have today, but uh, can I ask you to just maybe run over them again to to put them in the context of what they did before, and why they might be able to succeed this time. Yeah, there were a mo- number of things that they did wrong. First off, Intel, since it's been its own manufacturer for so long, doesn't necessarily use industry standard terms, industry standard tools, and all that stuff, which makes it complicated. Uh, if you've been working with TSMC or Samsung and you try to walk into an Intel fab, you may, be, you may think they're speaking a different language at times. So I, I think kind of... And they've made an effort over the past couple of years to try to change that. So um, that was one issue. Another issue was the fact they were trying to use the Intel fabs. You know, the same fabs are manufacturing Intel parts. That means any fabricated parts for foundry customers are going to play second fiddle. And Intel's not going to be willing to modify the process because they don't want to impact the process for their products. So, I mean, a couple of things are getting right here is one it's a separate business. You have to make it a separate business because that business has to be focused on the customer. They have to be willing to modify the process. They have to be adjusted demand and everything else just for those customers. Matter of fact, this is what Samsung did and they got it right where, you know, they have a separate group, separate fabs, separate capacity, separate engineers, separate everything. Um, There is a little bit of overflow, especially for IP, but for the most part, the Foundry Group runs as a separate group, and this is what Intel's trying to do. If anything, they're fun, they're following a model that makes sense, and that was pioneered by Samsung. All right, uh, Jim. Anything else? No. I don't, well, the only thing I would say is, you know, I, I had the opportunity to sit down with uh, uh, Pat along with some other analysts, and um, one, it's good to see the excitement come back to Intel. Um, I worked at Intel under Andy Grove. Uh, it was an exciting time. Um, matter of fact, uh, he even referred to it on the call that, you know, he, he, when he's talking internally, he uses it as kind of a, a refers to kind of a Grovian culture, uh, referring to Andrew, Andy Grove, obviously, um, where, you know, he's trying to bring that excitement back, bring the philosophies back, you know, like only the paranoid survive, you know, and get people energized and keep you get people uh, going and uh, especially on this new strategy, which, you know, some of it's new, some of it's bringing back some of the old stuff. Um, But really the one key thing for Intel going forward, especially with this new manufacturing strategy is execution. And I can't say that enough. 
he started out by saying that, you know, we're trying to get seven nanometer on track. We're going to be doing tape in with Meteor Lake and Q2. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what you do or how much fab capacity you have if you're not competitive. And that's kind of the key thing. They have to be competitive. So they have to be competitive on the process nodes. They have to be competitive on their process cost. Uh, the cost, I think they can get. It's the node that they, they've slipped on 14. They slipped on 10. They have to be on track with 7, 5, 3 going forward if they really want to be a serious foundry. Right. Jim, thank you very much for your time. It's always fun talking to you. It's great, Brian. Thank you very much. That was Jim McGregor, Principal Analyst with Tirius Research. Now, Gelsinger covered a lot of ground with his announcement. While we focused on process technology with Jim, we turned to his partner, Kevin Crewell, for some additional perspective on other aspects of what Intel is planning to do. All right, Kevin, you were also listening in on the conversation with uh, that, the announcements from, uh, from Intel yesterday. And you had an interesting uh, insight into the collaboration between Intel and IBM. And can I get you to discuss that? Sure. Uh, you know, it's actually one of the second most surprising parts of the announcement. The first being the fact that, um, you know, Intel was getting back into the foundry business. But the second was that they were collaborating with IBM on uh, process development and package development. Both companies have a long history of advanced uh, development work in those areas, but they have never collaborated in the past. Um, in fact, as far as I can remember, for decades, there, there have been more competitors. In fact, Intel in general didn't collaborate on process development with anybody. They, they really went their own path, whereas IBM became a hub of many collaborations um, with like Freescale, AMD. Uh, now their most recent partner is Samsung. And so this was a, a major change that uh, both IBM and Intel were going to be working together on the next generation of process development. Uh, that was really uh, almost an unimaginable 20 years ago uh, that they were, they were more rivals than, and uh, they would cooperate. But um, things have changed. Uh, you know, in, Intel, I think, has been a bit humbled by what's happened with their 14 and 10 nanometer nodes. Um, they indicate they're they're well along the way on, on seven to prove things. Um, they've in, embraced more EUV, the uh, extreme ultraviolet lithography technology, which is something that IBM in their uh, uh, Albany uh, research labs have uh, been doing EUV for many years now and been one of the leaders in developing uh, EUV as a, a manufacturing process uh, technology. So it bodes well for both companies. So I, I'm, I'm very, very positive on this one. So you um, alluded to the fact that IBM and Samsung have been allied. Um, does uh, the relationship with Intel, is that uh, apt to change the dynamic between uh, IBM and Samsung or the dynamic among IBM, Samsung, and Intel? At the moment, and from my conversations with IBM on this exact subject, um, it appears that there is no collaboration between or, or sharing between uh, Samsung and Intel at this point. Um, both are partners with IBM. 
Um, IBM is, you know, has, uh, you know, the technology that they can share with each partner and work with them. But uh, there's no um, uh, sharing between IBM or between Samsung and Intel at this point. Yesterday, during the announcement, um, neither IBM nor Intel was very specific about what they might collaborate together on. Well, I think we're about to move into a new uh, process structure. Um, it's gate all around or nanosheet technology where uh, that will replace FinFET. Um, and IBM has a lot of experience in the research lab working on this exact uh, structure. And Intel will lead that structure for their future process nodes. So I think there's a good reason for the two to work together. Uh, this is, a, like I said, a brand new transistor structure. I think there could be a lot of learnings back and forth between uh, Intel and IBM on how to manufacture this. And I think that's one really good area for the two to co-op, uh, cooperate and, and collaborate because it's, uh, the, it's the next generation of process structures after FinFET. And nobody's got it in production yet. Um, IBM's got maybe a little more experience in the labs. Um, so I think maybe there can be some significant uh, learnings that IBM can share with Intel, uh, get them jump started to, to get this uh, nanosheet technology into production sooner. Uh, on the packaging side, IBM's always had really amazing advanced packaging, although it, it's tended towards the high end, like for their Z series and, and uh, power servers. Um, but uh, certainly what Intel is doing with Foveros and EMIB uh, is very interesting. Um, there there are uh, tiles, which other people might call chiplets, um, be able to stack those in 3D as well as on package. Uh, IBM is doing something has been doing some similar stuff, and I think there's definitely some advantages to the Intel technology that it could actually share back to IBM in this. Uh, EMIB is actually an interesting one for high bandwidth memory, especially. Uh, it's very cost-effective uh, technology, so it doesn't cost an arm and a leg to uh, build these structures. Um, and for us, is uh, I think maybe one of the criticism of Intel is that it, it, Pat made a big point on Tuesday about. The, how great their you know, the packaging technology is, and they, they think it's perfect. But I think they haven't broadly adopted it in uh, their product lines. And I think that's where you have great technology, but if you don't actually deploy it, you, you need, you know, what's the value? So I think Intel has been slow at deploying uh, EMIB and Fovios, and now we're starting to see some, uh, uh, we're starting to see it actually come to market. And uh, uh, so that, in, and on the IBM side, it, I think they've got some, amazing stuff as well. So it, it'll be interesting how that collaboration works out. Packaging is important. As you disaggregate disaggregate chips into these uh, chiplets or tiles, whatever you want to call them, um, packaging is the way you glue this all stuff together. And that's and, and there's always uh, more innovation that you can, you can expect in this area. Yesterday, Gelsinger opened with a set of principles Culture is going to be important moving forward at Intel, don't you think? I, I know you think that. That's why I'm asking. Yes, because I already told you that. <laughs> um, yes, culture is important. And and I, this is actually um, one of the, I mean, actually, this could be one of the pillars of uh, what Pat is trying to do at Intel, and that is, is bring back a culture 
um, that he remembers from maybe with a little bit of rose-colored rose glasses, though, uh, from you know, his time at Intel of, uh, you know, geekdom and, and, um, and high-quality engineering. And I think he's trying to recreate that um, feeling of that Intel was the place to be for, for uh, the chip business. And, um, and I think, you know, they, I think he pretty much um, has admitted that Intel lost that, that edge. Um, and I think that's something that would be really important to get back. If, if they want to attract the best and bright talent, they have to show that come to Intel, we're working on all those cool technologies, everything from AI to quantum to uh, advanced software. Um, and he has to make Intel cool. Um, and so therefore, he's really embracing um, this kind of geek culture. And I think that he's trying to um, make Intel um, more like a, a Facebook or a Google where, you know, it's, it's those are kind of known as geek, you know, havens. Uh, and so I think he's going to try to reinvent Intel as a, as a home for the geeks and, um, and, and elevate that culture within Intel. But he's also heavily committed to execution. I mean, it, it's a mix of this kind of cool geekiness, but also the Andean Grove um, execution engine that he, he admired uh, from, that, from, the, from those days in the 80s. And I think that's what he's trying to blend together. Uh, hopefully, he brings all the, the good parts of Andy Grove, not, not all of Andy Grove's um, uh, policies were the best, um, but uh, the execution is important, uh, the competitiveness um, that Intel has traditionally been. Um, he has to, he's going to sharpen that probably as well. So things can get a little hotter for uh, AMD and and uh, and uh, uh, Nvidia over time, but uh, he's he's really trying to recreate a, a culture here and restart it. Um, and uh, the fact he's bringing back IDF later this year under a new name Intel On uh, is part of that. I think he's he's partly trying to reinvigor the idea of you know Intel as a place to go and 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 hang out with the Intel people and go to Intel events and, and uh, immerse yourself in that culture. Uh, I think NVIDIA, uh, their GTC, which has come up in a few weeks, had stolen some of that culture. Um, so he, uh, I think Intel has to try to catch it back. They talked about um, the, uh, the products that they've got on their roadmap. Um, and uh, I, I had talked to you about this earlier, and you'd said that uh, well, it, they're they're basically reaffirming the roadmap. But does reaffirming the roadmap play into what you just said about execution? Is is do are they using uh, you know what you know, are they using what they're they've already promised as uh, indication that yes, we can deliver on what we said we'd deliver. Um, yeah, those are early proof points, and I think they need something um, more immediate. I mean, obviously, you can't. I mean, AMD, uh, when Lisa Sue first came on board, she had a, you know, it's like, okay, we've got Zen coming, and it's going to be like two years to three years from now. So you got to gotta have patience. Um, you know, people don't have, I don't think they have this much patience with Intel right now. They, they want to see something now. Yeah. They want it now. And I think that's where Pat know, knows he has to deliver in a more immediate manner. 
And that's one reason why he's bringing back uh, a form of IDF later this year, uh, not next year. Um, so yeah. there's, um, there's definitely, I think Pat feels under the gun. He needs to uh, show something uh, positive in a short term. And um, having proof points on seven nanometer with a, a tape in, as they call it, in a Q2. Um, and um, having uh, delivered products on, on a, a regular basis this year uh, and into next year. And um, those are all proof points. And I think he's he's got to show this is a, you know, he's ticking off these uh, these uh, items on his checklist and hitting it on a timely schedule. So it's it's all, I think it's all trying to build this momentum that, yes, Intel can execute again. All right. Any last thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, I think it's going to be important for the cloud vendors that they can now approach the cloud vendors and say, hey, we we can work with you on developing exactly what you want for your cloud and manufacture it for you. Because um, they've seen AWS move towards Graviton, uh, which is an ARM-based solution and manufactured, um, I've got a TSMC or, or Samsung, but anyway, by a third party. And they, you know, that's net lost business for Intel. But now they can say, yeah, you want to build an ARM Graviton 4? We can do it in our fabs. And, you know, we'll be here in the United States. And um, and then and they pointedly said that they would be willing to go after Apple as a, as a business. Um, so even if Apple wants to build the M2, 3, whatever, an Intel fabs using ARM cores, Intel is open to doing that. Um so, and, and another, you know, you look at all the uh, collaborators in there, uh, there was, I mean, Qualcomm was listed in there. Qualcomm put out, you know, Cristiano, from, uh, the new CEO of, of Qualcomm, put out supportive statements about this. So this is, you know, this is another, for, for many people in the ecosystem, adding a third advanced process node um, foundry into the ecosystem is, is really important because Everybody's getting nervous that it's only TSMC and Samsung. Um, and then having Intel come into the play really sort of stabilizes it a bit more. I think it's a little too, there was a little too much power in both TSMC and Samsung. And now with uh, Intel committing capacity, committing dollars behind it, um, fixing their process, opening up to third parties and opening up to third-party tool chains, um, they now have a real third alternative and that, that that's important for the ecosystem that i think does it kevin thanks for thanks for joining us again no problem always always a pleasure that was kevin crewell an analyst with Tirius research intel's decision to become a leader in the foundry business did not occur in a vacuum geopolitics a pandemic and global warming are combining to disrupt the worldwide semiconductor business in ways that were unimaginable a few short years ago. As a result, everyone is reevaluating assumptions. Pure economics argue for letting the electronics industry operations continue to migrate to China, but now economics are no longer the only consideration. Other concerns are getting weighted more heavily, concerns such as supply chain integrity, manufacturing capacity, and the security of manufacturing resources. Intel's new foundry business is part of that bigger picture. So is the foundry Skyworks going public. We've got those stories along with others about chip shortages, the practicality of reshoring IC manufacturing, 
the economics of chip manufacturing, Europe's deliberations about how to become more self-reliant in the semiconductor business, and more. Sorting out global semiconductor manufacturing is going to be an enormous, complex issue, and it will be an ongoing story. We invite you to check out EE Times and our sister publications, and to revisit this podcast series as we continue to cover the issue from nearly every angle. The subtext of everything we've discussed so far is silicon. All the stuff about semiconductor production, the semiconductor in question at the moment is still silicon. Silicon has been pushed to its limits in very many ways. It has reached its limits in other ways. One of those ways is in power electronics. Silicon will remain a workhorse semiconductor in power electronics for the near term, but a growing number of increasingly important applications have power requirements that are simply beyond the capabilities of silicon to do practically or at all. For those applications, the industry has adopted the use of another semiconductor, gallium nitride, or GAN. EE Times editors, along with the editors of some of our sister publications within the Aspen Core Publishing Company, have created a new book covering this newly important semiconductor. The book is called An Aspen Core Guide to Gallium Nitride, A New Era for Power Electronics. With us to discuss the book and the subject of gallium nitride, we have with us editors Nitin Dehad and Maurizio De Paolo Emilio. The people who are buying the book are probably the ones who are vitally interested in gallium nitride applications, but for those of us who uh, who uh, are perhaps unfamiliar, can you mention two or three or four of the uh, applications uh, that uh, gallium nitride is going into? Talking about, uh, Maurizio, I'll throw that question to you. We're talking about power converters and other things, right? Yes. So, again, uh, um, is it called this alternative to silicon? We can... Uh, uh, we can uh, find a lot of applications, in particular for consumer, uh, industrial electronics, uh, chargers for, uh, for wireless uh, devices, including 5G, but also drivers, uh, circuits for uh, motor control and uh, power switches in uh, immobility, automotive, in electric vehicles in particular. But also we can find several applications for space, uh, in terms of uh, power conversion in in the space, this is a reference book, um, and the three of us have been talking about gallium nitride for a while, but it's still relatively new. So this becomes a a, a powerful reference uh, for 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 engineers, right? Yes, right. So this uh, this book, uh, this gallium book, uh, would answer. Why wideband gap uh, semiconductors, in particular, YGAN? Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, in this uh, book, we can find a lot of uh, uh, articles uh, wrote by uh, good writers uh, in uh, industry in terms of technology and uh, and market. And uh, together with my colleague Nitin, we uh, put together of this contribution uh, for several uh, applications, also to analyze the, the market. Because, uh, uh, of course, gallium nitride is important. Gallium nitride can offer uh, more efficiency than, uh, than silicon. But this is uh, due to the, physic- the physical aspects. In fact, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in this book, uh, 
we take care uh, the designer uh, in terms of application, but also the physical, because we need to demonstrate that GAN is uh, superior, is uh, is uh, is uh, is more uh, efficient than 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 silicon. Just imagine, you know, you, know, you need higher dis- system performance and device performance efficiency, smaller form factors, lower system costs. Now, uh, the the GAN-based transistors and chips can basically uh, enable you to produce smaller charges and adapters, for example. And uh, if you look at uh, market analyst Yol, they said uh, last year in 2020, the second quarter, um, high power fast chargers accounted for more than 70% of the total gallium nitride power market. So you, you can see that you know, that's uh, quite important. Uh, also, it allows the development of converters that can operate at higher switching frequencies than equivalent silicon devices, and that means it reduces the transformer size. And you know, you, that's where you get the system efficiency, and then you, you eliminate the need for heat sinks and things like that. Right. So what I've heard is contributions from EE Times writers, contributions from uh, people who know the market, so you'll have some marketing information. And we've got contributing authors, uh, including Alex Leto with the forward, uh, but other contributors from other companies involved directly in gallium nitride research. Is that correct? Yes, it's about um, hundred about 150 page, yeah, pages of um, sort of technical articles from all those types of companies. So, so people are sort of providing some of the technology, um, not necessarily backgrounders, but you know, real real-world applications uh, and and the, the sort of technology references behind that, but also it's uh, str- uh, you know t- touching on the markets right at the beginning. You know, uh, where are the opportunities? Uh, where are we seeing it? And where where, it's, where where is the future? For example, and then uh, right at the back of the book, yeah, we've got a lot of reference sources from material uh, we published uh, in E Times, in Power Electronics News, and the various sources uh, that yeah we we've also published over the last year or so. In terms of technology, uh, of course, we focus on several applications, as uh, we mentioned, but also in terms of test and measurement, because at a certain point, designers uh, should uh, demonstrate the reliability of, of GAN. In this case, test and measurement are very important. And we focus also uh, on this part with uh, an article about uh, how to test, how uh, what are the main uh, the, uh, instrumentations for uh, testing uh, GAN uh, devices for several applications, in particular in this case for automotive? That was Nitin Dahad and Maurizio De Paolo Emilio. Both contribute to EE Times. Nitin is also the editor of Embedded.com, while Maurizio is also editor of Power Electronics News. If you're looking to get a copy of our Gallium Nitride book, you can find it by going to our website and clicking the link on the nav bar that says Store. And that is it for the weekly briefing for the week ending March 26th. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at eetimes.com podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. This podcast is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.